Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Nine Months, Paula Bomer's debut novel available this August from Soho Press. An unrepentant satire and lacerating denouncement of mommy culture, Nine Months is the story of an artist unexpectedly pregnant for the third time and desperate to reclaim an identity separate from her family. She leaves her husband and children for a cross-country odyssey marked with drugs and casual sex in the hope of retracing the steps that led to a life more artless and tame than she ever imagined for herself. Marcy Dermansky calls Nine Months, quote, deliciously dangerously rogue and sam lipside says quote words like tough and honest don't quite do justice to the fiction of paula bomer the perfect summer read for young mothers heavy drinkers doubtful churchgoers militant vegans skateboarding pros from the 80s sassy librarians social smokers and small business owners nine months is available for pre-order now and will be in stores on august 21st for an excerpt and a full list of reviews, visit SohoPress.com. Soho Press, independently publishing bold new voices in literature since 1986. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is noise from a computer. This is a podcast-type situation. Nice to have you here. Thank you for tuning in to this, the 86th episode of this program. Uh, sort of hard to believe that I've done 85 of these, let alone 86 uh, and of course, the uh, episode 100 mark is not too far off into the distant future, and uh, neither, for that matter, is the one-year anniversary of the program's launch, uh, which is due to happen in September, and I sort of feel like I should do something to celebrate that. Uh, I feel like I should uh, make some sort of effort to generate publicity and enthusiasm for the program and for the fact that it has uh, managed to reach the 100-episode mark. I feel like that would be uh, potentially the wise thing to do. I feel like if I could somehow generate uh, media coverage, then that would help the show uh, find more listeners. That would help me uh, generate more uh, brand awareness. I believe that's the term. And uh, I feel like that uh, would perhaps be logical 
uh, from a uh, business perspective. I feel like maybe that would be something that a uh, life coach or a strategic consultant might advocate for. And yet uh, I find myself fatigued at the mere thought of trying to uh, do such a thing. I find myself fatigued when I think about trying to generate uh, publicity. The whole generation of publicity process uh, wearies me. Brand management fatigues me especially. The very idea that I have a brand or that I am a brand, uh, i got to be honest, it makes me feel strange and uh, somewhat frightened. And, uh, you know, recently, just to give you some concept of this, uh, I tweeted the following, quote, When I hear people talking about their personal brand, I imagine myself running as fast as I can to the bottom of the ocean. So I don't know what that is. I think that might be rooted in my youth. That might be some sort of uh, denial thing. Perhaps it might be some sort of uh, tantrum, some sort of, uh, you know, extended uh, lifelong tantrum that I'm throwing when it comes to this sort of thing. And, uh, or it just could be, uh, perhaps very simply that I find the process fatiguing and that I'm not very good at it or that I find it difficult. And, uh, that when I think about it, I find myself wanting to drive into the desert at a high rate of speed or to run off into a forest and hide. Uh, all of which is another way of saying that perhaps I need someone to handle it for me or help me with it. So if, if uh, anyone out there uh, is good at this and uh, is an expert or is some sort of uh, guru and wants to help me uh, generate media coverage, by all means, uh, please contact me. You can email me. You can tweet at me. You can Facebook me. You can poke me. Uh, and if you are a life coach, please do contact me. Perhaps you could provide me with some uh, life coaching. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Alexis Smith. She is the author of Glaciers. It is a novel published by Tin House Books, uh, a terrific independent press. Very pleased to have Alexis here on the program. Glaciers is her debut. Uh, it is a short novel, and uh, the word slim is often used to describe novels of such length, uh, but Glaciers is the best kind of short novel. It is a short novel that weighs a lot. Uh, so it's short uh, and heavy is what I'm saying. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to step aside. This is my conversation with Alexis Smith, the author of Glaciers. It's like the dead end of, of Portland. Like if you were just to head north in Portland, you wouldn't get anywhere. You would just like, you'd end up in St. John's and you would either have to turn around and go back or you'd just stay here like some of us do. So. Okay. okay, so like break it down because I don't know Portland very well, but like in terms of... 
the various neighborhoods. Is St. John's mm-hmm. is that like uh is it like the Williamsburg of Portland? I feel like every city No. No, it's not. No, uh-uh. It's not. Hip. It's um it's like when you tell people that you're moving to St. John's, uh even though it's like 15 minutes from downtown, they act like you're moving to Seattle and they're never going to see you again. It's it's um it's its own little thing and you kind of have to go through either this uh gross industrial neighborhood on the west side um, of Portland and then cross the river to get here, or you have to drive through um, uh, just like a million uh, mundane neighborhoods um, through Portland to get up here. So it's kind of, it's kind of its own little town. It was, it was only incorporated in like the 1970s or something like that. Like it used to be its own town. And it's still got a downtown, a little like main strip that feels like a small town downtown. Um, and, uh, there's train, train tracks that like carry, uh, scrap metal to ships to be shipped off to smelters in China. And what is <laughs> you can smel- see the Willamette River and, um, what's that? What is a smelter? That's just like a metal melter? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like it's just a big industrial, um, me- yeah, metal melter. Okay. And you call it smel- they break- smelting. Smelting. <laughs> I kind of like that word. That's a nice word. It's that you learn all the vocabulary when you live here because, well, at least I do because I have a four-year-old and he's always like, what's that, Mom? And I'm like, I don't know. Let's find out. It's <laughs> <laughs> a smelter. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a train carrying scrap metal to China. <laughs> okay, so why, why are you living there? Like, what brought you to, to St. John's? Did it, did it appeal to you or was it just like good rent or good whatever? Like, do you, what was the purpose of, of going there when everybody else is living uh, in other areas or is that a, yeah is that a mischaracterization um i wasn't yeah it's it's kind of true i mean it's it's got its own sort of um its own sort of secret allure that some people you know catch on to but um but i lived in i've lived in portland for almost 13 years and um before that i was in seattle um before i spent my high school years and when i moved to portland it was still a really grungy funky punked out town. Um, there was a really strong, vibrant, like queer scene. And, um, uh, you know, everybody seems just a little bit on the down and out. Um, but they were all like super nice and welcoming. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of great things have happened in Portland over the years. Um, but I've watched it change so much and the neighborhoods basically just like priced people like me out. (laughs) You know, people move here because of the the vibrancy of um, the arts and the culture and the beautiful, um, beautiful landscape and the proximity to the coast and mountains and um, and the food scene here is really huge. The Willamette Valley is um, known for its its wine and its you know other uh, hazelnuts. I don't know, you know, all of these different things draw people here and um all the people came for the hazelnuts clearly they came for the hazelnuts totally (laughs) uh but you know people come here and that's great um but more and more people fewer and fewer places um to be and renting here is just terrible so part of the reason um that i moved to this neighborhood was the rent because i wanted my kid to have his own bedroom and (laughs) He still ends up in bed with me most of the time, but he has his own room now. 
and um, and I couldn't afford it anywhere else in the city. Um, and St. John's just happens to have this feeling that's more like the Portland I moved to many, many years ago. It's sort of, it's still, it's on the fringes. It's very working class. Um, people know each other. Like everybody in the neighborhood knows you or knows somebody who knows you. Um, and you, and, li- and you yeah. like that? You don't, you don't want to be anonymous? Uh, <laughs> um, I'm sort of anonymous, you know? I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I worked at Powell's for many years, and so um, working at Powell's, at Powell's is like a, a tourist destination. So um, you're sort of surrounded by people all the time, and Powell's becomes this big family, and um, and you get sort of sucked into downtown and and being at the center of things downtown. And um, I think I just wanted to be. But just a little bit away from that, you know, near enough to it that I could visit. Um, because I love every, all my old coworkers at Powell's. I just, um, I still, still really appreciate them. I just, you know, I needed to be a little bit. I just don't want to off see on them my anymore. own. I think. <laughs> so, I just want to totally disassociate from them. I love them, but I want nothing to do with them physically. You know, it, it, it had more to do with the job and not the people. Um, the job was really um, defeating for me. It was really uh, watching the company change and then the sort of quality of life of the employees change. All of my friends um, was really like heartbreaking. So how do you mean? You know, I, um, <laughs> I don't know how much I can talk about it. I mean, I guess I'm not an employee anymore, so they can't really retaliate. But um, <laughs> uh, it's just to be the feeling of um, of, you know, Powell's is a family business, and it was always run as a family business. Um, it just so happens to have unionized workers, <laughs> and um, so there was a lot of um, there were a lot of things that that the people who worked there were really invested in about the jobs, and um, a lot of those things went away, and we sort of lost. Um, the ownership we had for the place and the work that we put into it um, was sort of taken away from from a lot of us. A lot of us felt that way. I don't, and people who are still there, I think, um, sometimes feel that way. But um, it's the kind of place where you can go to work, or you used to be able to go to work, and you would work there for thirty years. There are people who have been there for thirty years. Um, you get which health, says like a lot about you get like healthcare and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the wages are super low. I will say that they're they're not quite at um, at living standards, <laughs> but you get health you get health insurance and you get um, paid sick leave. You get these sort of other benefits that help sustain you um, in ways that you learn to live without cash, you know, because you have these other things that are sort of propping you up. So for people stayed there for many many years, and that got too expensive for the company, and as a result, you know, they've they've put a lot of um, Unpopular measures in and uh, uh, hiring part timers when folks leave, um, so that they don't have to extend benefits to those people. Um, it takes away the investment in your job, and um, there's a lot more stress on people who are there and have been there a long time. And it was cut, they they were doing some jerky things too. I mean, they weren't. <laughs> I I got after eight years, they changed my schedule twice in a month knowing I had a kid and childcare concerns and everything. 
And the second time they changed it, they gave me a split weekend. I was full time and they gave me my days off as Sunday and Wednesday. And I'm sorry, you don't do that unless you want them to want your employee to quit, you know? And so my feeling is that they wanted me to quit and they knew I had a book coming out and they knew that I wanted time off to um, pursue my book tour. And, um, and I think that they knew that I would leave. <laughs> I think they knew that I would leave if I, um, you know, if they push me. <laughs> well, I think that happens a lot in, in business and in life, like where people just, it's kind of like passive aggressive. Like they don't have the, the stones to actually, you know, let somebody go or have the actual confrontation. So they just try to make things as miserable as possible in hopes that the person will make the decision for them, you know? You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know that they make the conscious decision, yeah, to, to just, to, to target people and do that. Oh, I think they, I mean, but, I, I don't um, know if they did for you, but I mean, I'm not, I don't know about this specific instance, but I think that sort of thing happened. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't conjecture about whether they, they consciously targeted me or not, but just as a whole, the feeling, the feeling was that if you had been there a long time, uh, you weren't valued anymore. You were um, a big number on their spreadsheet. And they would just as soon not have your big number there, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, so, you were so costing sad. them a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's so sad. Um, but I, I, I like... mean, at the same at the same time, Paul's is a, a spectacular place, a place where so many books are. It's just kind of amazing, and um, and I want them to succeed. I want them to to survive in in the book world and still be around. So I'm really in a you know, I feel really um, conflicted about it all yeah. around. But I mean, they're supposed. You know, to I'm like, happy. They're supposed to be like the good guys. You know what I'm saying? Like in terms of yeah. in terms of business practices. So it's just like I think like everybody in the book world is just getting squeezed so bad. I mean, including you. You know what I'm saying? Clearly. So it's just hard. <laughs> it seems like for everybody up and down the chain of command. I, I think so. I wouldn't want to be in in Emily Powell's position. Um, I think she's she's got a really tough road ahead of her, um, keeping, um, keeping a bookstore as big as Powell's afloat. <laughs> right. Um, but I wish her the best. I really do. And, and I hope that, uh, things can go well for Powell's and all of the, the people who work there as well. So, well. And then what, so what did you switch to? What did you transition? You know, when you left Powell's, what did you then transition to? Writing full time. Oh, really? Okay. So you did this book. Yep. You, you went on I, your tour. I quit two months before the book came out. Okay. So, um, so that was last October, November, last November. And, um, and I have been doing all the sort of typical, um, you know, book launch stuff. I had to put up a website and figure out how to use Twitter. And <laughs> How's that going for you? Um, I, I'm terrible. I'm so yeah. bad at Twitter. Yeah, I know. Are, are, are you humiliated? Like you feeling humiliated yet? And like, you know, like loathing yourself. That's that's how it goes for me. Like I cannot use that without somehow feeling bad about myself. I don't, I'm not. I'm not there yet. Although I might. I might get there. I, I actually. I feel like if I get there, it's. I'm probably using it successfully. Isn't that kind of what <laughs> it's for? That is. That that's actually the benchmark. As soon as you start hating yourself, you, you know it's working. <laughs> Because it seems like, you know, I, like, I just, it doesn't ever occur to me to, like, tweet something, you know, I, I just don't, I don't use it enough, so. 
Yeah, um, it's a weird uh, discipline. It's a weird thing. Some people are, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like I talk about this too much, so I don't want to get too deeply into it. Like on this show, I'm, yeah. I'm constantly bitching about Twitter, so I'm sure people are rolling their <laughs> eyes. But it is the bane of my existence, and yet I can't get away. Um, okay, so let's get back to like you writing full time though, because that's an interesting decision. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not easy. I mean, do you feel like it's working? Mm-hmm. Or are you? Are you? Feel, do you feel like you're falling without a parachute, kind of thing? Or like, how's it going? Um, I, there, I have definite moments of panic when bills are due. Like I, I'm just, just squeaking by on like sort of liquidating my assets and, um, and, uh, you know, my credit card is maxed out and, um, on the tax return and little bits of, of money that I get from, um, you know, royalties and, uh, foreign rights and stuff like that. Um, but you know, I can complain about that stuff for about two minutes before I realize that I'm, I'm pretty happy. I'm super happy. Um, I feel really, really grateful that I get to do this right now. Eventually, I'll have to, you know, go apply for um, Starbucks or something. But, um, but right now, um, I get to write full time, and I'm really, really happy with it. Are you working on another book? I. I have been, I've been doing other projects. I have another book that's sort of been on the back burner, simmering away for about three years. Um, but since since Glaciers came out and I've been doing interviews and I've done guest blog posts and, um, you know, being a single mom, I I went a lot on a lot of my book readings um, when my son was at his dad's house on weekends. So I would, like, bust out of town and then have to run right back here and, so, I mean, that was really occupying me for months. So this, the book that I was working on um, has sort of been, I've been waiting um, to sort of dive into it. And I'm just now, um, I'm finishing up a project for the Burnside Review and, and Portland Art Museum. And in fact, I'm trying to figure out what to title it right now. <laughs> oh, you are? What's it about? Let's figure, let's figure this out. What's it about? <laughs> um, it's so it's so hard to explain. I don't know if I could... It, um, the project is basically eight writers were placed in eight different spots in the Portland Art Museum. And um, uh, we were given free access um, for a month and a half to go whenever we wanted and sit in our spot and be inspired by it and write some piece, a poem or, or a prose piece that references it in some way. And um, my spot was up in the uh, contemporary Pacific Northwest Gallery on the fourth floor. And um, I had never actually been up there. And... I I just sort of picked these two pieces that I was most drawn to and sort of made characters out of them and made them um, have a relationship and and gave them something to say that I sort of thought the pieces were trying to say and um, I had a lot of fun with it. It was really I've never done anything like this and it was just it was really entertaining and um, it, and kind of energizing to do and um, like a short story was it a short week, story. It's a short story, yeah. Seven seven fifty max words. So um I had to really rein in my language and uh <laughs> um yeah, it was it, I mean it was just kind of a fun thing. It was so much more fun in some ways than writing something on my own because I had these parameters that I really had to um pay attention to and um and I'm, I guess I'm a really good rule follower. Like it just, it made it simpler for me somehow. Um, 
No, it's kind of uh, it's it's nice. It's kind of nice to have some restraint sometimes in art. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When you have like purposefully tied one hand behind your back, sometimes that can almost make it easier or it can, it might not make it easier, but a lot of times it generates, I think more interesting stuff, you know, in the end result. Yeah. I mean, some limitations can be really useful. Um, if you have fewer choices, um, you know, it, it makes you really creative with the ones that you do have, with the things you can choose. So, um, yeah, so I mean, it's really the the title really has to come organically from. <laughs> yeah, when you start when from you the story started, itself, uh, and I can't really. <laughs> no, no, you, we don't want to get into that. I thought, like, I didn't realize it was a short story. I thought it was some sort of like freelance writing project, and then as soon as you started talking, oh about, no! <laughs> as soon as you started talking about eight different writers in this uh, in this museum, I was thinking Octo, like Octo Mom, but that, that's, <laughs> that's getting off it's getting off track quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So, but speaking uh, of, speaking of limitations and speaking of kind of working in a way um, that is confined by uh, circumstance or by directions or whatever it might be, like you mentioned that you're a single mom, uh, mm-hmm. which is a lot of work. I mean, I have a I have a kid. I know how much work it is with with uh, two parents in the house. But like you're raising, uh, your it's your son. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I guess you, you you're splitting time with your husband a little bit, but you're kind of the primary caretaker. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, he's with me most of the time. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So um, when when with that in mind, like how do you how do you work it? I mean, I guess if you don't have a day job too, you know, then and writing is your day job, then I guess when he's at school mm-hmm. you, you can work, but does it make you more disciplined? Does it make things worse or better in terms of your ability to get your work done? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no, um, I, I was kind of amazed actually at how much better a writer I am now. Um, I think in terms of not, I mean, in terms of quality of writing, I don't know, you'd be the judge, but um, in terms of how much work I get done, I'm much better now than I was, say, in my 20s when you know I really didn't have anything outside of work to do, um, there's just a stronger sense of, um, okay, I need to get this done now because I'm picking him up from preschool in, you know, three hours. And then um, I still have the laundry to fold and the <laughs> cat boxes to clean or whatever, you know. I mean, it really, it the sense of urgency um, sort of day to day helps me. Like I was saying, I'm, I'm, I kind of need those those limitations sometimes to get things done. Well, I, think, um, I think a lot of people do. I mean, you know, like when you only have X amount of time in this particular window, you either, you either get it, uh, you either get it done then, or you or you don't. You know, that's it. And, so, and you feel like crap. You're like, oh, God, I wasted that whole. You know, like, um, yeah. I do, look, at least I do. I, if I if I don't get something done during the day, I feel like. You know, I, I mean, I, it's probably like typical um, parent guilt or something like that. But you know, it's yeah. I feel like there's a, there's the urgency that isn't just a day to day basis of getting work done. It's like, okay, I quit my job. I, I don't have health insurance anymore. Um, I'm barely making the bills, and I have a kid. And what am I going to leave for him? You know, what what am I creating for him? So, sort of in the long term, what I produce is is what I'm leaving him in a way, you know, it's like, I have to have something to show for this. And, um, 
And that kind of urgency is really helpful for me. <laughs> That's some good guilt. I can feel that. I, 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 feel, <laughs> I feel a similar guilt where you're just like, what am I doing here? I got to make sure that like, you know, uh, when my daughter grows up, she doesn't look at me and be like, what the fuck was he doing? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, especially if you're a creative person, I think um, writers and, and artists and um, creators of any kind, you spend so much time in your head and kids can sense that when you're not with them you know what I mean so like even after I've picked him up and I bring him home my head is still kind of like going on whatever I was writing I'm you know and I have to sort of bring myself back and be like oh be here like be with him right now like you know focus because he senses when I've sort of checked out a little bit you know or checked into whatever I was writing and um you know I feel like to some extent, that's just going to happen, um, I, you know, in life, period, whether your parent is a creative person or not, like just out of sheer exhaustion, at some point, your parents are going to check out. But I feel like, you know, they're they're not getting, he's not getting 100% of me all the time. And I feel like if when he grows up, he can look back and say, yeah, my mom was kind of flaky sometimes, but, you know, she wrote 16 books or whatever, that, 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 that I'll be okay with that. You know? Yeah. I mean, you gotta. I mean, you have to do a little bit of horse. Yeah. You gotta do a little bit of horse trading when you're trying to make it everything happen. Do you know what I'm saying? You're trying to make a living. You're yeah. trying to raise a kid. It's like you have to. You do the best you can. You know. You do the best you can. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's talk a little bit about how you uh, grew up and then how you came into uh, being a writer. Like, first of all, like, I, are you from Alaska originally? Is that right? Yeah, my parents both grew up there. And we lived there until I was 10. Okay. So tell me about that. Like, what is this? Because, like, I have this, uh, I have this very, like, I used to have, I think, uh, used to have a very idealistic uh, vision of this untamed wilderness and, like, the last good place that wasn't completely spoiled where (laughs) wild animals roamed and, like, free spirits lived up, you know. But then, um, you know, as I've gotten older, and I, you know, I hate to sound, uh, I hate to cheapen it in some way or sound ridiculous, but this whole Sarah Palin thing, like recast my vision of Alaska. I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Like it really, it just made me look at the whole thing more closely. And I think it just got more media attention and so on and so forth. So that sort of colors the way that I see it now, like not entirely, mm-hmm. but partially. And so I'm interested to hear like your thoughts on like, you know, your childhood there and, you know, the place uh, now that you look back on it from the mainland. Well, it's, um, in, in some ways it is that, that idealistic place you described, um, when you experience it firsthand, it can be really, um, it can be really overwhelming and, uh, the sense of your own smallness, you know, on the planet, um, can be really strong and being a kid there and, having that be the first sort of environment I came in contact with um, really made an impact on me. Like it, it really shaped how I look at the world, how I experience nature, how I think about animals and um, in my relationship um, to sort of the planet as a whole. And I'm, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm a super deep person, right? And I feel totally connected to nature all the time, but... <laughs> But, like, you know, when you're a kid and you grow up sort of 
around, like seeing whales, you know, when you're out at the beach and, um, you know, do glaciers, seeing glaciers when you're driving up to Anchorage to um, go school clothes shopping at the only real mall in the state, you know, or whatever. Like, um, you just get a kind of uh, different view of the world, you know. Um, you're, but you're also kind of right in that um, there's something about Alaska as a place that, um, that, I mean, and I don't, I didn't, I had no consciousness of politics when I lived there. Um, my grandparents were originally from, um, Texas and they were like my, my dad's parents anyway, and they were, um, good old fashioned Southern Democrats. So, um, I grew up with these, these kind of progressive grandparents in a state that, um, turns out was kind of conservative, <laughs> Um, so I didn't really know anything about that until I left. Um, but there, there is a kind of character of people that, that are attracted to Alaska and that sort of set up camp there and live there. And there are people, um, like my grandpa who, um, was kind of an asshole. Um, sometimes <laughs> they're like my grandpa. Um, and he was an alcoholic and, um, he was not always um, kind to his wife or his family, and they lived out on a homestead, and and the winters were really, really long. And so, why um, did, why did they wind up there? Like, what your grandfather was the one who took the family up there? Yeah, my grandpa um, and my grandma in the fifties uh, drove the unpaved Alcan Highway up from uh, from Oklahoma, and uh, which is where my my dad was born, and my grandma was a nurse there, and they just, like, packed up a car. She was pregnant with my aunt. My dad was two. They drove up to Alaska. They they were in Anchorage for a winter, and then they bought a bunch of property and had a homestead down on the Kenai Peninsula. Um, they were, you know, he grew up a farmer, um, and uh, his dad was into farming, and, you know, pretty much everybody um, was into farming and ranching, and um, and there was a promise of land in Alaska and, um, and a lot of incentive given because, uh, the government wanted to populate the state and, um, exploit the natural resources. <laughs> so, um, to do that, you know, they gave people, um, really good incentives. And, um, my grandmother was a nurse and she, uh, was a, a uh, housewife for a while, and then she was an elementary school nurse in the in the city that eventually um, grew in their area. And um, what city is that? In, in the Kenai Peninsula, you said. Yeah, they were actually kind of between two towns. One was called Kenai, um, and Kenai is right at the mouth of the Kenai River in Cook Inlet, um, and it's about three hours south of Anchorage. Okay. Yeah. And Pilatna. I had a friend, and uh, I went to Boulder, and I had a, a hippie friend in college who named. She had a husky named Kenai. <laughs> that yeah, that that makes complete sense. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Good, good Native American word. <laughs> um, uh, the other time was Soldotna, um, which is the bigger of the two towns now, and um, it's really. I still have friends there. It's um, it's known for its salmon and halibut fishing. Really um, gorgeous river that runs through it, Glacial River, um, the Kenai River that just 
it kind of takes your breath away when you see it. It's just a blue like you've never seen before. It's it's incredible. Like I still dream about it. Oh wow. Okay. You know, I remember I was down in New Zealand years and years ago, and I, I remember the freshwater was like blue green. You know what I'm saying? It was like oceanic. Yeah. It was almost yeah. like oceanic, and I just I remember that distinctly too because it was so striking to me to see it like that. And I guess that's is that what it looks like when it's clean? Is that what happens? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. It's like frozen for millennia, and then. Right, and then as it melts, it's just like yeah, um, it's not full of all of the industrial pollutants that have been um, coating our rivers and our streams since then. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, it, I mean, I can look out my window now, and I, I look out my window and see the Willamette River, and the Willamette River is um, a completely industrial river, and it's brown. Yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> they just ruin them. They just ruin them. So. Uh, were you, was it a happy childhood for you? Like the first, I mean, cause like, I feel like the first 10 years of most kids lives and unless they have some really like difficult extenuating circumstances, um, you know, you're just playing and you're going to elementary school and the stakes are relatively low. Was that the case for you? Like, were you having, were you frolicking in the wilderness and having fun and <laughs> you just liked it and you didn't know any better or like, how would you, yeah, think? yeah that was the case. <laughs> okay. Right, yeah, pretty right. much. I mean, you know, we had we had minor family tragedies, you know, that marked me in whatever way. But I think ultimately my parents did the best they could, and I have good relationships with them now. And did they stay together? And um, they're no, they divorced when I was five. Oh, they did. Okay. So um, they, but they stayed in Alaska. Um, and then when my my mom got remarried and decided to move to Seattle, um, my Dad actually was like, well, I can get a better job in Seattle anyway. He moved to Seattle, too, and we, so we all ended up moving down together. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that they did a remarkably good job for um, for people who, it turns out, really didn't want to be with each other, you know? <laughs> like, it would maybe rather not have had that tie for life, but, um, but, you know, they kept it together for me and my sister. That's cool. You know, I love it when I think, I mean, obviously that's the right thing to do, but I, I like when I see that happen, you know, I have friends whose parents were divorced and, you know, they've, they wound up like, uh, being friends, you know, and, and staying close in some, you know, different way over time. I'm, I'm sure like that wasn't the case in the beginning when the split first happened, mm -hmm. but, you know, these things can kind of mutate over time, you know, and not necessarily in an unhealthy mm -hmm. way. Is that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, so what about Seattle? So then you're, you're, you become, you, you know, Seattle is like adolescence, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So were mm -hmm. you, were you, were you missing Alaska? Were you disaffected? Were you like, there's no whales, you know, jumping around? <laughs> I mean, Seattle is a really kind of gorgeous city in its own way. And I write about that in, in Glaciers. In my book, I, like you get the sense probably that, that Isabel and I are very similar as Isabel is, is modeled on me. So there are a lot of things in Isabel that I invested in her from my own experience. And one of them is that I, I really loved Seattle in a lot of ways and, um, and took to it, um, I think quicker than, than say my dad did, <laughs> um, or maybe even my mom. Um, but, um, why, it was, what, what, what was it, what, what was it for you that, that, uh, that drew you in? Well, there were still mountains. I mean, there were, you know, there were, there were these elements that were, um, that were, that were familiar enough, you know? So it was sort of finding for myself, um, similarities in, in 
the things that were really different, just sort of finding something in them that was that related to something that I knew. So, you know, the city is can be big and scary, and the woods can be big and scary, you know, and yet I used to wander through the woods by myself and, you know, have to back away from Mama Moose and her babies, you know. And, yeah, what about, you know like, I encountered all kinds of dangers as a kid, so. Well, what about, yeah, what about, like, grizzly bears? Did you ever have to deal with that? You know, and I never saw one up close. Um, they were mostly in the, you know, in the rural area, not, not even rural, they were mostly in the wild areas, and, you know, we were in a really populated area. Occasionally, um, a, a, a small brown bear or black bear would, would come down um, closer to the river into town. It's happening more and more now, I guess, than used to happen um, because of wildfires and other sort of climate change things that are happening in Alaska. Like the the wildlife is is trying to adapt, is maybe coming up against humans in ways that they didn't used to. Um, but when I was a kid, it was really still, um, you had to really go into the wild to, to find the bears. And um, the moose, however, would just walk right through town and like hang out on our playground at school. And <laughs> well, So in a, in a, know, a mama moose is dangerous? Yes. Okay. They are extremely protective of, protective of their babies. Oh, I didn't realize Because most that. babies don't live. Yeah, like... They don't. Most of them don't survive the first year. Only like a third of the of the offspring will survive every year, and the mothers are just really fierce. And they they like have a morning um, a morning call if they lose a baby. It's it's pretty incredible. So wait, what, what do you mean? Like the kids, the the baby moose? Is it baby mooses? Baby moose? Mm-hmm. They just uh, I'd say moose. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say meese, and then <laughs> uh, they just did they die in childbirth or do they just die like what is it? They get eaten by predators? Any number of reasons. Uh, they could yeah, I mean they could get hit by a car. They could get um, taken down by a grizzly. They could you know uh, they could you know they, they probably wouldn't get shot by a hunter. That's kind of illegal, I think. <laughs> but um, you know I, any number of things could happen. They could fall into the river or you know it's the wild anything could happen okay um, no i had a moose experience when i was in uh, maine once i was camping and i heard like this clacking you know like this clacking sound it sounded like uh you know two pieces of wood being hit together and i I remember turning on my headlamp and opening my uh tent flap and i just like stuck my head out the tent and i was like literally almost nose to nose with this giant moose (laughs) <laughs> um, and it was walking through the it was walking through the forest, and its antlers were like banging against like little trees. Trees, yeah. uh-huh. So, but I mean, it, I did I wasn't scared at all. It just kind of looked at me. It seemed like a big horse with antlers, you know. Yeah, I mean, they kind of they. There's one aspect of them that they're, they're kind of big and slow, and and um, you know, then there's also then there's the mamas. <laughs> and the mamas can, be- and it, but the, they will charge you. Yeah, I mean, they they are definitely like. You know, that's my baby. Back right. off. You know, not not at all like that. I mean, I'm sure Mama Grizzlies, as you know from Sarah Palin, <laughs> are um, also fierce protectors of their young. But um, you know, maybe I align myself more with the moose or something. I don't know. You're such a you're such a communist. <laughs> so un-American. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So let's get back to uh, Seattle. You go through high school. You're in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Normal kid? Mm-hmm. Were you weird? What was the deal? Oh, I was freakish. I was extremely freakish. I, <laughs> um, 
uh, you know, this was the grunge years. This was like, I was a riot girl. I like worked in, on zines in my room for hours with, um, with my, you know, geeky artist friends. You worked on what? And zines. We, oh, okay. we had zines, you, you know, had, everybody had a zine. Everybody had a zine. And then what is it? You define riot girl for me. Like, what does this mean? Um, it was really based on, uh, the, some of the all girl punk bands that were coming out of, um, Olympia at the time, um, like Bikini Kill and, um, and, uh, Bratmobile and, you know, just different bands that, um, they, you know, they were outcast too. And, um, they were on these sort of like unheard of record labels and, you know, they, they all produced these little zines and you could, you know, write them and they would write you back. And it was all about, you know, just sort of solidarity with the other, you know, fringe girls who, you know, didn't want to shave their legs or. So that's what you, um, you, you weren't shaving you know, your legs. Was that the deal? I didn't, I didn't shave my legs. No, I didn't shave my legs most of the time. Do you now? Um, Has that changed? Um, I, you know, I just did for the first time since like last, um, December the other day. <laughs> so it's still, clearly it's still with me some. Um, okay. And then what about like in the ar- <laughs> armpits and the whole thing? Like, are you fully like hippied out? Like, no, no. I mean, I, I actually, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I didn't have as much hair, so maybe it just wasn't, it didn't bother me as much then, but you know, I'm a full grown woman now and I've had a kid and my body's really different. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there's, there's some, and sort of, um, you know, the the uh, the trappings of of womanhood. I don't know. I yeah, don't know well, what else to, to call I, it. I don't. Want, <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to sound judgmental. I think like to each their own and whatever. You know, this, these are sort of arbitrary rules. But like, I'm just a person. Like, body hair in general, male or female. Like, I, I've got issues with it. You know, personally. Uh, like, I think I wish everybody was hairless completely. Even eyebrows? No, I'm kidding. But you know what I'm saying. Like, I. <laughs> There is a part of me that is disgusted by hair for some reason. I don't know why. Do you know? Yeah. It, well, you know, it, sh- it always shows up when you're not expecting it. Yeah. It's just, just like there, uh, you know. Ugh, yeah. And no, I like I'm starting, I'm starting <laughs> to get grossed out just thinking about it. But, um, you know, I'm not an extremist. I mean, I, I don't shave my head or anything. But like, uh, you know, when I, I got to be honest, like as a guy, if like a, a woman has got like really really hairy armpits or something like that. I, I, I do a double take or, you know, I'm sort of, sort of like, oof, you know, like, but then I say to myself, does that mean that like I've been conditioned by society and uh, I'm being an idiot? Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's sort of a hard negotiation. If, I mean, if, if every woman you saw in the media had hairy armpits, it probably, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't save you. It might still gross you out, but you'd be like, whatever, it's the way the world is, you know? Right. Right. Um, I don't know. I remember being in, I was, I was in a Cucina Cucina restaurant once in high school um, <laughs> in uh, in Seattle with my family. This was like like my dad and and sister and and I. We always went to this one Cucina Cucina, and uh, I don't I don't know if they're still around. It's a chain restaurant, but they had all these posters of from Italy on the walls, and I remember we always used to end up sitting at this one table that had a poster of uh, young Sophia Loren um, behind it. And she's posed just um, alluringly against a wall, and she's got one arm sort of draped over her head, and she had hairy armpits. Oh no! Her and re- but seriously, like <laughs> it, it's Sophia. 
it's Sophia freaking Loren. I mean, she was gorgeous. It was, yeah. you know, I just remember it striking me like, wow, you know, that's like, she's still really hot, you know? <laughs> I just got a hair. It, I see. I can't deal. I can't deal. I don't know why. <laughs> I think women, if you're listening and you have hairy legs and hairy armpits, like just just for me, please. Like I'm not trying to be cruel or sexist or anything. It's just like I don't know what it is. I guess I'm just I'm completely like irreversibly conditioned to uh, to want like hairlessness, like a, especially like an armpit hair. Oof. But I don't know. I don't know. I, am, am I venting too much? Like personal? Uh, I think. I think that um, the, I think that if you want women to take you seriously when you say that, that you should be willing to do something that you maybe don't feel compelled to do right. just for the sake of woman right. of womankind. You know, let's, let's try to come up with something that seems fair. Like, what could I do? Because like I try to I try to groom. You know, like I try to be uh, considerate. Like I don't want to smell. You know, or I don't know. Like I try to do things. That, <laughs> like here's something that I've talked about. I think on this show before. But like, here's something that I think uh, guys should do, which I think might be a bit unconventional in the world of guys. But like the fact that men do not get pedicures or do not take good care of their feet is the, uh-huh. which, which is something yeah. that, which is something that women tend to do at least. Um, I think that's a I think that's a a I think it's a racket. I think it's like the women really have figured this out. Like it's really relaxing to go get a pedicure. It's nice. It's com- you know someone like takes care <laughs> of that. You read a magazine. You're in like a massage chair. Like. It's a, it's a totally mm-hmm. relaxing thing to do. And then plus like, you know, a person's feet, you're on your feet all the time. You're walking around they're in shoes. Like, mm-hmm. take, like, why is it considered uh lame or weird or metrosexual for a guy to like go in and get some maintenance done on those things? Like, I think that's, yeah. to- I think that's totally defensible. I mean, I think it's like, I you know, and of course I say that and I haven't done it in forever, but like, <laughs> I, I like to do it. It's something that I would easily concede to a woman if she were to say so. It might just be a matter of marketing it, you know, like the environment needs to be maybe say a bit more male friendly or something, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to go in there and sit down and have like the TV with, um, you know, the view on or something, you know? Well, see, this is the like, thing, but yeah, that's true. It could be like sports center, but then it's like, I always like, I tend to go with my wife, like sort of helps to have, like, if you're a guy, it helps to have like a wing woman because like, then it like, well, <laughs> it, then you can like act like you're being dragged in. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh-huh. Right. But if you're like uh-huh. in there solo, it's like, what are you doing here? You know, like we're all watching the view and then it's like me, but like, I, 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 I hate that I would be affected by something like that. Like I, I, I'm the kind of person who will go in any way and just like sit through the discomfort as a matter of principle because it shouldn't matter. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that's, that's noble. That's noble of you. <laughs> well, we have, this is really a, just a tangent, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, so you're a riot girl. You're extremely hairy adolescent. <laughs> <laughs> you idolize Sophia Loren oh. and, uh, punk bands <laughs> from Olympia. And then like, what, what, when do you start? Uh, I mean, you're obviously you're making zines, so you're writing then. Like, was it apparent to you mm-hmm. then? Like, was it apparent to you that early that you were going to be a writer? Yeah. It was. Okay. Okay. And then let me ask you this, because I think this is something that doesn't get talked about enough with writers is that I I think writers in general, I mean, I think there's some, are some people who are just naturals. And I mean like capital N, um, like book, they devour books. They know they're going to write books. That's all they want to do. But I feel like for me, uh, and for a lot of writers, it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, I can't sing and, uh, I'm never going to be a rock star. And, 
you know, like, I feel like it's sort of like this thing. You're like, what? but I can do this. It's like another way to express yourself. Does that make any sense? You sort of fall into it when, uh-huh. you, when you realize you're not going to be um, like the next, uh, like Keith Richards or something. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've definitely met people who I felt like, um, well, I, I would say other writers to me fall into a couple of different categories and I don't, I, I wouldn't, um, dare to say one is better than the other, but, um, there, well, actually I might be revising that as I think this out, but, <laughs> you know, the people I've met say in grad school fell into two categories and one was people who just had a really natural inclination for writing. And so they felt like that's what they had to do or needed to do or, um, or pe- or teachers told them that they were good writers. And so they did that. That was me. Um, It was kind of me. I can't remember those moments, but go ahead. Keep going. Right. And so you feel like, okay, this is, this is easy for me. I, maybe I enjoy this. Um, I have a natural talent for it. Right. And then there's the people who maybe don't have as much raw talent, um, but who are just determined that they're going to be writers. And I have several friends that I don't think, you know, starting out, I don't think they had as much raw talent, but they work harder at it than anybody. They work way, way harder at it. They're more disciplined. And, you know, and these are people who I would say are, are people who are, are still writing, who I can consider writers rather than, um, you know, college students who think that maybe they will write, you know. Um, so I think they're, you know, and, and hopefully, like, eventually those two groups, you, you know, you sort of evolve and as you force yourself to write more and more, you become better at one or the other. You know, you become more disciplined, you become more interested in doing the work um, and and less interested in sort of indulging your natural ability, you know. And on the other side, like, the people who are just pushing themselves to, to write more and more and more are sort of developing, a, um, you know, a more organic voice of their own and, and um, are just becoming better, better and better writers themselves. You know, I... I don't know. I mean, that's that's kind of how I how I see it. So, what camp are you in? Uh, like, I didn't. I'm not sure if I'm clear. Like, were you in the in the, in the oh. camp where, where like teachers were telling you? Oh that, yeah, that was you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely had teachers. I had teachers constantly, um, especially when we moved to Seattle. Not when when I was in um, elementary school in Alaska. Um, I had been in the same elementary school my whole life, but when I moved to Seattle, and I was in, um, you know, this big. I was in a big public school the first year. Um, my t- I had teachers ask me if my parents had, um, you know, in quotes, helped me with my, um, you know, essays or whatever I was, I was writing with my writing homework. And I was really baffled. And I thought, you know, being young, I thought that they were wondering if my parents were good parents and were helping me out, <laughs> you know? And so I would sort of hem and haw about it and say, like, I mean, of course, they had, my parents hadn't helped me at all. They didn't even know what I was doing in school and I didn't care, but, you know, um, you know, so I would sort of hem and haw and say, like, well, yeah, you know, if I had to spell a word, they would help me. And, and eventually I realized they were asking me because they thought that I couldn't have written it myself. And, um, and you know, once the, I had a teacher who sort of recognized that it was it was just me, then, um, then I got encouraged a lot. And I was given sort of extra work, I guess, you know. Um, and uh, what do you mean extra work? I don't know. Extra assignments? Not extra assignments, but just, you know, like the teachers who are, they find the class a book and then, you know, they would pull me aside and say, um, 
if you like this one, I think you'd really like this one, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, so when you're done with this one, would you pick up this one, you know? And if you want to write about both of them, you can, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, because, because I went through books so quickly. Um, but, but, you know, I didn't, I think that that's a trap a little bit, being told that you're talented at it. Um, because it took me a long time to realize that just because it's talented doesn't mean it's going to be fun all the time. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean you're going to want to write every day. Um, that it's still, it's still work. It can still be exhausting so, and frustrating. So and, when did you become serious about it? Like in terms of, I'm going to sit down and write a book and this is happening and I'm going to, I mean, when did you kind of get your comeuppance or whatever, you know, <laughs> you went through college, did you go to college? Yeah, yeah. I, I got a BA in English and uh, went on to get an MFA in creative writing. Okay. Where'd you go for both? Um, I I went to go, well, I went to Portland State. Um, I went to Mount Holyoke College for uh, the equivalent of two years um, for undergrad, and then um, my family couldn't afford it anymore. And I came back to the West Coast and moved down to Portland and finished at Portland State. And uh, and then I waited a, a couple years, and I applied to Goddard College, which had a low residency MFA in writing. And um, at the time, I was working at Powell's, and I, I liked it, and I didn't want to give up my job. And at the time, they were um, a great, great place to work and go to school. They um, really encouraged people to continue their education while they worked there, and they were great with scheduling. And so... Um, I did Goddard's low residency program, um, which meant that I went from, I worked at home most of the time and, um, and then went out twice a year for, for the residencies, which were about eight, nine days long and did like workshop stuff and met with my advisor and, um, went to readings and, you know, drank a lot and, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, enjoyed the Vermont countryside (laughs) Um, you know, like writers do. So <laughs> all writers enjoy the Vermont countryside. How could you not? <laughs> um, but I think it was really at Goddard that I realized that it was about it was about making um writing a, a daily part of my life and making it um something that I took seriously like a job, like work. Okay, so um, because um, I had to. How did, okay, so how did you get that though? Did you get that from someone, or was it something that you just sort of realized by trial and error? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how did you get there? Did you must have struggled or something? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what was it that finally yeah. made it click? I mean, I think having a few teachers, um, you know, look at my uh, my work, my creative work, maybe, and say, um, challenge me on it. Not necessarily say like this is crap, you know. Like it got her that it wasn't a typical workshop situation where you were getting like torn apart every day in workshop. You know, um, I would get let- long letters from my advisor every semester, and I think it was getting letters where I was being told, um, you know, this this is okay, this poem is okay, but you're you uh, you kind of just phoned this one in. You know, it was sort of they were calling me on my like. My it was clear I was procrastinating. Maybe it was clear I was, you know, just kind of trying to ride on my talent and not really like putting the work into it. But I knew that. I mean, I knew it deep down. I would send work in and know that like I had been fretting about it, but not doing it. You know, I'd been sort of freaking out about it and um, not giving myself the room and the time to um, to create something. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I think all creative people have that fear. You know, like, well, I just can't do it because 
what if I totally fuck it up? And, you know, it's, it's totally illogical, but I think it's something all creative people experience at some point and perhaps daily. Well, why is it, um, why is it illogical? It's illogical because if you don't do it, you have nothing, you have nothing to, um, you don't know that you're going to, you're going to screw it up. You don't know that you're going to fail, but if you don't do it, you fail. You know what I mean? It's like, if you don't try it, you never know. Right. Right. If you don't show, you know, you can, you can establish in your mind that you're going to fail and then you don't do it. You know, it's, it's, I think I had to come to that realization, you know, that I can't, um, I can't just like sort of spontaneously, uh, draw up my natural abilities and my, my inspiration and create something and then just let it go. It's, it takes a lot of, um, it takes mental work. I mean, it, it takes like sort of time away from the writing as well. And I'm sort of learning more of that now, but, but the, the first and foremost is you have to sit your butt down and, and get something on the paper. Otherwise you have nothing. You have nothing. Right. Um, it's like that first, <laughs> the first substantial draft is like really the, in some ways the hardest, I think, you know, mm-hmm. like just getting, especially in, in if you're working in, uh, on something book length, you know, just getting through that process is grueling. It's, it's much more fun, I think, to have that already and then to go back and sort of refine it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, when I, I've been working on this story, um, for the Burnside Review for probably a little over a month now. And I remember being really hesitant about actually sitting down and trying to get anything on paper and telling myself, I just need to go back to the museum and just sort of soak it in a little bit more but I, anymore, I try to catch myself when I get into that mental space and, and when I tell myself these things and, um, and just myself sit down, like just force myself, just say, okay, it's 9 a.m., we're sitting, time to sit down at 9, and we're going to open up the computer, and we're going to open up this document, and even if it's completely blank, you're going to put something on the page. And you can get up in three hours and do some jumping jacks and get a cup of coffee and <laughs> sit down again you know it's i i don't know i just so that's what it looks like for you yeah. when when you actually sit down to do the work i mean like you know you're you're like get like paint a picture of how it goes for you like you have a like what's a what's a, a regular chunk of time that you will have to work like you're talking like three hour increments longer shorter well now that my son's in preschool i have more time and i typically have four days a week um and he's in school for um, six hours or so. And, um, so I, you know, realistically, I end up spending maybe four hours on writing stuff for the, for at least four days. And I, I write best in the morning, so I have to do it. And, and it will start out kind of like, um, kind of like I just described, I kind of have to trick myself into it. You know, I just, if I think about it too much, then I will talk myself out of it. And, um, in one way or another, all, all the justifications just start coming, you know. So I just try not to think about it. I just sit down, I open the computer, I open the document. And, you know, once I get some things on the page, I'm usually sucked into it enough that I keep coming back to it at that point. Right. So it's it, like just getting over that initial, that that one, you know, paralyzing moment, you know. <laughs> yeah, just like just opening the freaking document is like... Part, yeah, like that's like a big part of the battle. Just like actually opening it and then locking in, and you know, getting back into the voice of the thing, and you know, like, like how much of your time 
is spent sitting there as opposed to actually like typing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you have like, do you have to warm up considerably or like once that document is open and you start to read, you're into it? I mean, it totally depends on what I'm working on. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't really measure it in, in time. I don't know if this happens to you, but, um, I lose time just, you just go into a time warp when you're writing, you know, it's like once you get sucked into it, you could be working on one paragraph and look up and it's been two hours and you didn't really realize that it was, that, you know, time was passing in that way. Um, things slow down and speed up at the same time, you know, um, same thing with parenting, you know, it's like some days feel like they're never going to end and yet time seems to be flying by somehow, you know, all of a sudden your kid's walking and talking and you know um writing is kind of the same way for me where i just kind of like if i'm in it i kind of lose track of everything else and um i my entire body might be going numb from sitting in the chair (laughs) but you know i don't realize it while it's happening It, it takes like getting up from the chair to realize it so how long did it take you to write glaciers um you know i had big breaks in between i had a kid (laughs) Um, I signed my contract with um, Tin House two weeks after my son was born, um, and I had I'd been working on it in grad school. So I came up with the first um, draft of it in grad school, and it took about a year and a half. And um, and of course, I was working on it with other at the same time as other um, grad school work. So um, I wasn't devoting all my writing time to it, and it was only eighty pages then. It was pretty short. Um, and gosh, I took a, a big, long break while I was pregnant. Cause I was just, you know, throwing up every day and, um, and, uh, let's see, I probably really got back into it when my son was about a year old. I think that first year was just super, super rough. And, um, and it wasn't getting a lot of writing time. You know, I was attached at the boob to another human being and, uh, just, just wasn't happening. Um, but when my son's dad and I split up, um, things suddenly got easier somehow, (laughs) you know, and this is, this is not a complaint about him necessarily. You know, it's just (laughs) when you're, when you're in a relationship that's not working (laughs) and you're trying to do two other major things, you know, be a parent and, um, you know, create something, it's just, it's just way harder, you know? Um, so I can only imagine adds layers. Yeah, it, it, exactly. There's there's another human being whose emotions you're you're coming up against all the time, you know. And um, yeah, so it, my son was about a year and a half old, I guess, and I was really able to dive back into it. And he's four now, um, so you know there was a good four there was a good four years of work on the book. Um, the editing process with Tin House was really long, um, mostly because I was working with um, Lee Montgomery, who is wonderful. She's no longer with Tin House, but um, she uh, she was my editor, and she was swamped with work because she was the book's editor at Tin House, and, and I was um, a special project of hers, I guess, and which I totally benefited from in the long run, and, um, and I learned a lot from, from that experience, but it was hard work. It was really, it was a really educational experience (laughs) and you feel i mean obviously you feel like it made the book a lot stronger i do yeah absolutely i mean there are things of course like i look back at and i think oh i wish i had kept that chapter in i wish i had maybe kept 
you know, this element or that element of it in, or I wish I had cut this part. You know, the book is not perfect, and it's, I don't imagine anyone ever thinks their books are perfect, but, um, but I think that it is, I think the book it is today owes a lot to Lee and her insight. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate the time. It's been really fun talking with you, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, you know, with the rest, I guess, are you still touring with this book or is it something where you're, uh, you're kind of done with the tour and now you're just like, uh, you know, continuing to do press and then, um, you know, getting, getting transitioned onto the next thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely diving uh, headfirst into the next book at this point and, um, I'm happy, always happy to talk to people, but, um, but yeah, my days are basically taken up with writing now. Well, good luck with it. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's the program. That is Alexis Smith. What a delight. Go get her novel. It is called Glaciers. It is available now from Tin House. You can find Alexis on the web at alexismsmith.com. She's on Twitter, and her handle is amargaretsmith, at amargaretsmith. You can find her on Facebook, too. And don't forget, this episode of Other People was brought to you by Nine Months, the new novel by Paula Bomer, available in August from Soho Press. Please visit SohoPress.com to learn more about the debut literary novel that Susan Henderson calls, quote, a page-turner that will tie your stomach in knots and stir up one hell of a debate. That's Nine Months by Paula Bomer, available in print and ebook on August 21st from Soho Press. Uh, okay, also, thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Uh, please remember that Truman Capote wrote while lying down and that Eugene O'Neill died of bronchial pneumonia in a Boston hotel room. That is all I have for you today, folks. I will be back again soon. Thank you very much, as always, uh, for tuning in and listening, and thank you as well for spreading the word. Uh, What am I going to do now? I'm going to go hang out, I think, with my daughter. I'm going to uh, contemplate uh, finding a life coach. I'm going to uh, possibly contemplate wandering out into the desert in search of uh, my life coach. Hello? Hello?